Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, September 27th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. Biden joins Michigan's picket line to support auto workers. The Palestinian Authority welcomes its first Saudi ambassador. South Korea holds its first military parade in 10 years. Ukraine claims the commander of Russia's Black Sea Fleet was killed. U.S. and Kenya sign a defense deal. Mali's junta postpones the nation's presidential election. The U.S. sues Amazon in a landmark monopoly case. SCOTUS rejects Alabama's congressional map. Heavy rain kills at least six in Guatemala. And ChatGPT is upgraded with a new voice feature. Biden joins United Auto Workers striking on the picket line in Michigan. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Business Insider, CBS, CNN, Reuters, and BBC News. U.S. President Joe Biden on Tuesday joined United Auto Workers strikers on their picket line at a General Motors parts distribution warehouse in Michigan encouraging them to keep fighting for a 40% raise, despite concerns that a prolonged strike could harm the economy. Though lawmakers and presidential candidates often appear at walkouts, this is reportedly the first time in American history that a sitting president has ever walked a picket line to show support for an ongoing strike. The UAW members have been on strike since September 15th, after the union and the big three automakers Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis failed to reach a deal before contracts expired, affecting 41 facilities nationwide. This historic trip to the battleground state of Michigan ahead of the 2024 election comes as Biden faces consistently low approval ratings and the looming threat of a government shutdown this week. On Wednesday, Republican frontrunner Donald Trump will address hundreds of auto workers at a non-union supplier in a Detroit suburb, an event that UAW President Sean Fain reportedly doesn't plan to attend. These rare back-to-back events underscore the electoral importance of the Midwestern Rust Belt, where blue-collar workers such as UAW members form a crucial voting bloc. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Melissa just laid out the facts for us, and here's our first spin, the Democratic narrative from MSNBC. This historic visit to the UAW picket line attests to the truth of Biden's self-proclaimed staunch pro-union stance, sending a powerful symbolic message in support of striking workers and stressing the rising influence of organized labor in the country. His decision is likely to give UAW members more leverage in negotiations while also calling out right-wing false populists. Fox News brings us the Republican narrative. As Biden sees his polling numbers sinking deeper ahead of the 2024 election, he is desperately trying to secure an endorsement from the UAW, one of the biggest private sector unions in the country. That is precisely why he decided to take sides in this union negotiation. Yet, walking the picket line does not change the fact that his pro-EV policies and economic mishandling have harmed working-class Americans. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 50% chance that at least 459,000 workers will go on strike 
as part of major work stoppages in the U.S. in 2023. Palestinian Authority welcomes its first Saudi ambassador. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Voice of America, Reuters, Arab News, Barron's, and Al Jazeera. The Palestinian Ministry of Foreign Affairs has hosted a self-proclaimed historic milestone of welcoming its first ambassador of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Nayef al-Sudari. The delegation to Palestine is the first of its kind to travel to the West Bank since the Oslo Accords in 1993. Al-Sudari was initially met by Palestine's highest-ranking diplomat, Rayad al-Maliki. Non-resident al-Sudairi, who is also Saudi's ambassador to Jordan, continued the two-day visit by meeting Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. Al-Sudairi's new role was revealed in August this year, with his position also described as Consul General in Jerusalem. The ambassador claimed that his new position and visit reaffirms the Palestinian cause, allowing the opportunity for bigger cooperation between the two states. Al-Sudairi also emphasized the importance of the 2002 Arab Initiative as a cornerstone of any upcoming deal, referring to both the proposition for Israel to leave the West Bank, East Jerusalem, Gaza, and the Golan Heights, as well as the U.S.'s desire to broker a deal between both Israel and Saudi Arabia. This comes as Israeli Tourism Minister Haim Katz has arrived in Saudi Arabia for a U.N. conference marking the first public Israeli cabinet member to visit the Gulf nation. This is occurring alongside U.S.-brokered efforts to attempt to achieve Saudi-Israeli normalization. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. And we'll begin this round of spins with a pro-Israel spin from the Times of Israel. Having previously disregarded the importance of diplomatic ties with Israel for nearly a year, the White House now expects Tel Aviv to accept and allow concessions to Palestine in return for a deal with Saudi Arabia. Such a reality may be a stretch for Netanyahu's government, which will not relinquish to external international pressure. Israel has a high bar for any realignment of relations of nations in the region. And contrast that with the pro-Palestine narrative from Palestine Chronicle. This is not the first time that Saudi Arabia has shown goodwill towards Palestine, nor will it be the last. If the Saudis truly desire change in the West Bank, they must provide more than rhetoric and show they are truly supportive of the Palestinian cause. Palestine, too, has a high bar as the geopolitics shift in the region. And here's another nerd narrative from Metaculus, saying there's a 42% chance that Israel will recognize Palestine by 2070. South Korea holds its first military parade in 10 years. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNN, and the Associated Press. South Korea held its first large-scale military parade in a decade on Tuesday to mark the country's Armed Forces Day with a range of weapons and machinery marched through the streets of the capital city of Seoul. The parade reportedly displayed hundreds of pieces of military equipment, such as tanks, self-propelled artillery, and drones, and featured thousands of soldiers, including 300 of the over 28,000 U.S. troops stationed in the nation. The celebrations, which mark the 75th anniversary of the founding of the country's armed forces, comes as tensions rise on the Korean peninsula, with South Korea turning closer to its alliances with the U.S. and Japan as North Korea advances its weapons program. 
Some are concerned about a potential weapons exchange between Moscow and Pyongyang after North Korea's Kim Jong-un traveled to Russia's far eastern region to meet with President Vladimir Putin and visit key military sites earlier this month. Earlier this year, South Korean President Yoon Suk-yul and his U.S. counterpart Joe Biden announced a new agreement, including a U.S. pledge to station a nuclear-armed submarine in South Korea for the first time in three decades. Yoon, Biden, and Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida also held a summit last month where they agreed to new military exercises and a hotline for urgent communications. All right, thanks for that update from the Peninsula, Melissa. We have Narrative A from CTV News. While this parade is projecting an image of the strength and unity of South Korea and its military allies, the biggest impact is not going to be felt internationally, but instead domestically. The elaborate display of the parade and its celebrations show the South Korean people that their country is now an important global power and underlines the success of the country's defense exports industry. CNN brings us Narrative B. The arms race in Asia risks spiraling out of control, with the U.S. and its allies, Japan and South Korea, China and its partnership with Russia, and North Korea each vying for control of contentious land and sea areas. With no measures of restraint or arms control, the situation is likely to continue to worsen, as deterrence and escalation are often one and the same. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict there's a 15% chance there will be a full-scale war between North Korea and South Korea by the year 2050. Melissa, I was watching a a YouTube video on how different military face paint camo methods. um, And they had there was three main methods that they were showing. There was the American method and the British method and the South Korean method. So the American method was paint covers your whole face. You know, there's like brown, black, green, tan paint, and it's going to cover your whole face. Okay. The British method was the same colors, same kind of blotchy colors, but you also let a lot of your skin show through because that's also a color that could exist in nature. So you kind of use your own skin as one of the colors. Whatever color your skin is, it, it works. Okay. And then the the South Korean method was kind of black and green alternating like diagonal lines across your face. And uh, all three are like equally good, I guess. These people, I mean, I couldn't see the people once they went into the woods, any of them. Uh. But uh, but it was interesting that there was a South Korean method and it was like kind of distinctive. They're like, everyone knows the South Korean method, diagonal, black and green lines. So. So what are you up to, Scott? Are you looking for a Halloween costume or are you uh, shopping for uh, armies? Well, it's um, I'm actually thinking of uh, in another one of our projects that we're working on here. Uh, I'm thinking oh. of maybe doing a, uh, a military character of some sort. And that would be kind of funny. So I went to the source. There you go. There you go. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that, that's why. Or at least that's what I'm telling you. I'm not. <laughs> maybe. Right, right. Maybe right, that's right, not right. it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But if we I got just you on another project. Wow. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This on for this project, you're going to fly to South Korea, join the army, um, try out this camouflage and then we'll call you. I, I feel like if I ever went on any kind of undercover mission, 
the only person that knew about me would immediately lose the paperwork. I feel like for sure, you know, like, <laughs> you know, have you seen the departed, you know, or any, or, you know, dances with wolves, any of these things where like, no one's going to know you're there except for me, but I'll know. So you're fine. And then of right. course that person gets compromised immediately somehow. You right. Know, if, if I, if Eight I got sent, own. if I was undercover sent to jail, I would be doing 20 to life. Like there, I would just get out when my sentence was up. They would, they would forget about me. Right. That's, yeah. That's they, they how wouldn't, I feel. They wouldn't be compromised. They would just kind of have lost the paperwork. Yeah. Yeah. Where's like, that paperwork? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, that's why it would I, be. A co- it would be a comedy. I think. Oh, yeah. I hope so. it wouldn't be. Yeah, for everyone else. But I don't. It wouldn't be very fun to be in jail for for no. life. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. O- only that part would be would right. be a comedy. Except for that, it would be hilarious. Ukraine claims the commander of Russia's Black Sea Fleet is killed in their Crimea strike. Here are the facts as agreed upon by TASS, the Associated Press, Reuters, and The Guardian. On Monday, Ukraine claimed to have killed 34 officers, including Viktor Sokolov, commander of the Black Sea Fleet, in its missile strike on Russia's Navy headquarters in Crimea last week. Ukraine's special operation forces further claimed that 105 people were injured in the strike on Sevastopol. However, Ukraine provided no evidence for its claims, which were vastly different from how the event was portrayed in Russian reports. Russia's defense ministry initially reported that one serviceman was killed in the attack, but later issued a clarification to state that he was missing. Nonetheless, Russia's defense ministry has routinely minimized losses and adverse news throughout the conflict. Meanwhile, Ukraine's claims are a steep escalation of what its own officials earlier claimed. On Saturday, Karylo Budinov, head of Ukraine's military intelligence, stated that at least nine people had been killed and 16 others were wounded. Without naming Sokolov, Budinov claimed that Alexander Romanchuk, a Russian general, was in a very serious condition after the attack. While the death of the Black Sea Fleet commander remains unconfirmed, the Guardian's analysis suggests that considering Sokolov's seniority, it is not likely that the Kremlin would be able to hide his death for an extended duration. On Tuesday, according to reporting from Reuters, Sokolov was seen attending a meeting with other Russian military leaders via video conferencing facilities, seemingly dispelling Ukrainian claims. However, the date of the footage could not be confirmed. Those were the facts, and we'll start this round of narratives with a pro-Ukraine narrative from Kyiv Post. As reported by Ukraine's military... Viktor Solokov was killed alongside 33 other officers in Ukraine's attack on the headquarters of Russia's Black Sea Fleet in Crimea on Friday. TASS brings us the pro-Russian narrative. As a result of Ukraine's attack on the headquarters of Russia's Black Sea Fleet, one serviceman was reported missing, but there were no reports of fatalities. Ukraine's claims are incorrect. Metaculus has another nerd narrative for us. This one says there's a 1% chance that Ukraine will officially recognize a former Ukrainian territory as independent before 2024. The U.S. and Kenya sign a defense deal. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, the Associated Press, Voice of America, the East African, and Zaya. The U.S. and Kenya on Monday signed a defense agreement that will provide resources and support for security deployments in East Africa. As part of the agreement, Kenya has volunteered to lead an international mission to Haiti, where strife has been prevalent. 
U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Kenya's Defense Minister Aidan Duwale signed the agreement in Nairobi. The agreement aims to intensify defense cooperation for the next five years as Kenya fights al-Shabaab. Austin thanked Kenya for pledging to send 1,000 security officers to Haiti to combat gang violence on a mission that is awaiting U.N. Security Council approval. And he assured Duale that the Biden administration would work with Congress to secure the $100 million in funding it pledged to the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly. After approval by Parliament, Kenyan police officers from specialized units of the administrative police will depart from Haiti in the next few months to help stabilize the country, taking control over Port-au-Prince and other towns from armed gangs. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken last week urged the U.N. Security Council to approve the international mission in Haiti, which he said would be ready to deploy in months. He also urged other countries to provide additional funding, personnel, and other resources. Austin's three-nation tour of Kenya, Djibouti, and Angola runs through Thursday to boost U.S. ties in Africa. Thanks, Melissa. Army technology brings us the pro-establishment narrative. Although this deal focuses on Nairobi's efforts to fight al-Shabaab, it also enhances Kenya's role on the global geopolitical stage by elevating Nairobi to a leadership role in the international mission to stabilize violence-plagued Haiti. The U.S. and Kenya are strengthening their partnership, which will make the world safer. Here's the establishment critical narrative from All Africa. There are concerns about the legitimacy of any foreign intervention in Haiti, which is on the minds of human rights advocates and security analysts alike. All eyes will be on this mission as Kenyan forces enter a Caribbean nation that has a painful legacy of colonization and imperial intervention. I don't know. Everyone's pairing up with a side. It makes me nervous. You know, uh, alliances cause wars sometimes as much as they might stop them other times. Yeah, there's a lot of alliances. Uh, there's also just a lot of chaos going on in some of these countries. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's interesting. What what what's what's better for the geopolitical order? Uh, a chaos, you know, a localized chaos or mass alliances? I'm not sure which 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 is better. Uh, yeah. Um. Yeah. Probably neither. Mali junta postpones their presidential election. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by France 24, Punch News, Al Jazeera. Associated Press, DW, and Reuters. Mali's military government on Monday announced it would postpone a planned presidential election intended to restore democracy in the conflict-torn country originally scheduled for Friday. In a statement, the junta said the voting will be slightly postponed for technical reasons, including problems related to the adoption of a new constitution this year. Further, it also referred to a dispute with the French company, Edemia, involved in the country's census process, for the delay, adding that the new dates for the presidential election will be communicated later. As the government had decided to organize exclusively the presidential election, legislative elections initially planned for late 2023 will be held on a schedule established by the new authorities under the directives of the new president. The move could draw economic sanctions from the Economic Community of West African States, or ECOWAS, which the bloc eased in July 2022 after the military government agreed to hold the presidential election. Following military coups in 2020 and 2021, 
Mali's transition to civilian rule has been repeatedly delayed, while a constitutional referendum scheduled for February 2023 took place in June, legislative elections continue to be deferred. Thank you, Scott. And we'll start with a narrative A from Voice of America. The announcement is the most recent testimony to the autocratic nature of the so-called transitional government. That this is the second time Bamako has postponed presidential elections makes it clear that the supposed technical issues are merely a pretext to prevent Mali's transition to democracy. Since there are no valid reasons for postponing the elections, renewed sanctions by ECOWAS are an option to bring the military junta to its senses. And Narrative B comes from Daily Trust. Criticism of Mali's government ignores an important lesson of recent years. That so-called democracy has failed to deliver on its promise of development and peace. Recent African coups could only succeed because people are desperate and prefer military rule to a democratic facade. Moreover, countries like Saudi Arabia, courted by the West, show that democracy is no prerequisite for creating prosperity and stability. For the people, results matter more than the form of government. The U.S. government and 17 states sue Amazon in a landmark monopoly case. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and The Washington Examiner. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission, or FTC, along 17 state attorneys general, has filed an has filed an antitrust lawsuit against Amazon, claiming the company unfairly promotes itself at the expense of third-party sellers who rely on the company's e-commerce marketplace for distribution. The lawsuit filed in Seattle, Washington, alleges that Amazon illegally punishes merchants for offering lower prices elsewhere, as well as coerces sellers to use its logistics services if they want their goods to appear on the Amazon Prime subscription service. The FTC, whose chair, Lena Khan, has called for regulating Amazon since her days as a law student in 2017, claimed the company exploits its monopolies in ways that enrich Amazon but harm its customers. The FTC and the states, who are calling for a permanent injunction against the practices alleged in the suit, further claim that Amazon replaces relevant search results with paid ads, favors its products and its search results, and charges excessive fees to sellers. In response, Amazon argued that the FTC's focus has radically departed from its mission of protecting consumers and competition, adding that if the FTC gets its way, the result would be fewer products to choose from, higher prices, slower deliveries for consumers, and reduced options for small businesses. This lawsuit, which continues a probe that began under the Trump administration, is the latest federal action aimed at tech giants, including the Justice Department's current lawsuit against both Google and Apple. Thanks, Melissa, for that update. The FTC itself brings us Narrative A. Amazon uses coercive and punitive tactics to keep its top spot in the e-commerce market and then raises prices for goods due to the inorganic lack of competition that would normally bring them down. This tech behemoth has continued this regime of economic suppression for far too long, so thankfully, the FTC, backed by a bipartisan group of states, is finally laying down the law. Fortune brings us Narrative B. Since 2021, FTC Chair Lena Khan has unfairly targeted Amazon and its executives 
in an egregiously handled probe that shows a clear personal vendetta against CEO Andrew Jassy and Jeff Bezos. Khan has publicly shown her bias against Amazon since her 2017 article berating the company, and she's now abusing her power to target Amazon and its key figures. So like in macroeconomics, there are those who feel that like a true free market produces the best results uh, because, you know, the competition will keep prices down, make services good. You know, the market will determine that stuff. But a truly free market inevitably over time will end up with a monopoly because the companies will compete until one collapses and they buy each other. Mm. And then you're stuck with a monopoly. So a truly free market ends up with a non-free market. That's the 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 idea, you know, like that's that's the flaw. That's like the paradox of the free so market. We're just at that natural evolution where economics has gotten sped up so much by technology that uh, that everything is now a monopoly. Is that is that kind of what you're kind of? At? Yeah. I mean, that and, and it, it'll only get more so there'll only be more without regulation. The idea is that there'll only be more. But eventually there'll just be, you know, in a lot of science fiction, there's just one company that does everything, you know, every single thing. Um, which weirdly might as well be the same thing as a government doing every single thing, which is the whole antithesis of the free market. So, right. uh, so, so that's why you almost certainly need some kind of regulation. It can't just be a truly free market because a free yeah. market eats itself. That's what I was going to say. It's like a snake eating itself. Mm-hmm. Is that Ouroboros? Is that, what you, is that the mythical snake that's eating its own tail at all times? I, I don't know its name. Yeah. Okay. I think it might be Phil. Actually, I'm. I'm. Oh. I got that wrong. <laughs> oh, Phil. Yeah. 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 Phil the snake. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he lives in Seattle. He That's works right. for Amazon. Yeah. He lives in uh, what's Finney Ridge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Finney Phil. Yeah. I love that guy. <laughs> the Supreme Court rejects Alabama's redistricting proposal. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, CNN, Associated Press. USA Today, and NBC. On Tuesday, the Supreme Court of the United States rejected Alabama's bid to keep its GOP-drawn congressional map that included only one majority black district, ensuring that the state will likely have a second black district for the 2024 elections. In rejecting Alabama's emergency bid to approve its proposed map, the Supreme Court doubled down on its June ruling that affirmed a lower court order for Alabama to redraw its seven-seat congressional map to include a second-majority black district to reflect the state's 27% black population. The decision allowed a court-appointed special master to continue working on a new congressional map. On Monday, he put forth three proposals that included two districts with majority black populations that comply with the court's decision. A three-judge panel is set to hear the proposals for the boundaries of the new District 2, which would have 48.5% to 50.1% black voters. The Republican proposal had a black population of 39.9% and was unanimously rejected by the panel. In June, the Supreme Court rejected Alabama's proposal with Chief Justice John Roberts claiming that the map violated the Voting Rights Act. Conservative Justice Brett Kavanaugh reluctantly joined the majority, the 5-4 decision. Tuesday's decision came with no dissents or additional reasoning. Thanks for the facts, Scott. We'll start these spins with a Democratic narrative coming from Vox. The conservative Supreme Court actually did something positive and stood up to Alabama's assault on voting rights again. 
The Supreme Court already upheld lower court decisions that require Alabama to give fair representation to its black citizens. But the state's Republicans did everything they could to ignore the decision and disenfranchise black voters. The court's decision is a great victory for democracy and equality and brings some light to a region that has been plagued with discrimination and voter suppression. And the Republican narrative from the Heritage Foundation. This decision to enforce racial quotas in congressional redistricting defies prior decisions by the court's very same justices and only reinforces the idea that race is the most important part of a citizen's identity. While it's unsurprising that the court's liberal wing rules in favor of any decision that gives more power to the Democratic Party, it is very surprising to see level-headed justices like Roberts and Kavanaugh completely disregard their judicial philosophy. I, um was watching another internet video and do you know who Andre Agassi is? The Oh, the, the tennis player. Famous yeah. tennis player. Yeah. Boris Becker was another famous tennis player of the era. He was a like a German super server. And mm. apparently uh Andre Agassi at one point figured out that wherever direction Boris Becker was going to serve, he would point his tongue in that direction before he served. Oh. And uh he said so the issue from that point forward was not breaking his serve it was not revealing that he knew this this tell this trick so he couldn't actually utilize it too much he'd only wanted to jump on it when it was really important because if he was constantly just reacting in the right way then becker would figure it out and they were going to play many many times over the course of their careers yeah so he had to even though he had this like cheat code he had to kind of be careful with it you know otherwise it would go away And I would suggest the same thing with this gerrymandering, like maybe don't make it so it's just one district, you know, maybe not make it so obvious that you're that you're juicing the uh, the thing. I don't know if if I was right. If you're going to play it, if you're going to try and cheat in some way, then uh, it'd be sneakier about it. Take it easy a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not I, I don't know. There's a so then almost. Like, is that even what they're doing? It feels like they're going too far with it. Is it even on purpose? Is this just what's happening naturally? I don't know. Are you going to play Andre Agassi in your next uh, Orwell video? I dressed up as Andre Agassi one time at my friend Keith's bachelor party. We all had to wear costumes. And um, it was in Las Vegas. And Andre Agassi is famously from Las Vegas. And I dressed up in his uh, French Open 1991 pink, hot pink hot lava colored outfit. Uh, it's kind of like his most known, you know, when he had the long hair and, and all that stuff like that, yeah. that Andre Agassi. So uh, I've already dressed up as Andre Agassi. I had my brother paint the shirt, this kind of a famous shirt. If you saw it, you might recognize it. It's like black. It's a white polo shirt, but there's like a black smear on it and then like pink squares. And uh, you can't buy that shirt's kind of vintage now. You know, it's kind of a cool old, you know, 90s yeah. shirt. But I had my brother, I got a white polo and my brother, who's a good artist, painted the shirt for me. So that was my, I had nice. a pretty, pretty, and I had a fake earring, you know, like a magnetic earring stud because Agassi wore earrings. I had yeah. the long wig with a black visor. Like I had it, I had it, you know, like it was a pretty good costume. Nice. What was your question oh, again? I... No, I don't plan on dressing up as that for Orwell, but the, <laughs> but the, the moral of the story is that I could, if I felt like it. Image is everything. In Guatemala, heavy rains and landslides kill at least six people. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by DW, Al Jazeera, the Associated Press, and the U.S. Agency for International Development. A flash flood and a landslide in Guatemala's capital early Monday caused a river to burst its banks, killing at least six people. Initial reports suggest 15 others, including minors, could be missing. Waters from the swollen Naranjo River swept away at least six homes in the town of Dios Esfiel, according to Guatemala's National Coordination for Disaster Reduction Agency. Guatemala City officials stated that the choking of Naranjo with garbage caused water to pool upstream following the overnight downpour. A sudden declogging of the river then let loose the torrent that set off landslides, washing away houses built along the river's edge. Firefighters and search teams are looking for survivors, and a shelter has been set up for those affected by the landslide. As it has a very steep topography and thick soil, heavy rainfalls make Guatemala susceptible to landslides. So far this year, floods and landslides have affected around 2.1 million people, killing at least 29, damaging at least 10,000 houses, and destroying four roads and nine bridges. Well, thanks for those tragic facts, Melissa. We have a narrative A from Lamond. Plastic pollution is choking Guatemala's rivers. The Motagua River, the country's largest, reportedly carries almost 8,500 tons of waste every year. Until the mess is cleaned up and the trash cleared upstream, roaring waters will continue to breach the banks, particularly during the rainy season, leading to such tragedies. Narrative B comes from Relief Web. While Guatemala is Central America's largest economy, more than half of its population lives below the poverty line and often in places prone to natural disasters. To avoid similar tragedies, the government must address the country's housing shortage that leads to the mushrooming of shantytowns. ChatGPT rolls out voice and image prompts. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, CNET, OpenAI, TechCrunch, Mashable, and The Guardian. On Monday, OpenAI announced that it intends to add voice and image features to ChatGPT over the next two weeks. The voice feature will reportedly allow ChatGPT's Plus and Enterprise users to converse with the chatbot, including seeking its opinions on dinnertime debates. OpenAI has collaborated with professional voice actors to help ChatGPT generate human-like audio from text in five different voices. Spotify, OpenAI's launch partner, will use the voice feature to let podcasters translate their English-language shows into Spanish, French, or German in their own voice. Meanwhile, users will reportedly be able to troubleshoot gadgets, plan meals based on the refrigerator's contents, and analyze complex graphs with the help of ChatGPT's image feature. The news comes after Apple introduced an AI-based personal voice feature to iOS 17 that allows iPhone users to clone and store their own voice. Wow. Thank you, Scott, for those astonishing facts. And for this last story, we'll start the spins with the narrative A from Wired. Less than a year since its launch, ChatGPT's rapid evolution through the use of voice-based assistance in large language models, signals the arrival of AI as a mass market product like Google's search engine. This brings the realm of science fiction a step closer to the real world. And the techno skeptic narrative comes from MIT Technology Review. Beyond the initial thrill and amusement, AI's rapid advancement must be matched with rising awareness of the risks of it spinning out of control. 
from using private images malevolently to the potential to assemble bombs. AI's unregulated evolution is yet to address several concerns prompted by the tech giant's global rush to reign supreme. And the nerds have the last word from Metaculus, this time saying there's an 85% chance of an AI malfunction precipitating an event that will cause at least 100 deaths and or at least $1 billion in economic damage before 2032. Uh, Let me ask you, Melissa, how much would they have to pay you to own your voice and be part of this open AI thing for you to feel good about it? There's a number, you know, like what would it be? The Washington lottery right now is $750 million, so it, let's go ahead and just, you know, that's a number let's, that's let's out there. Let's just pencil so. that one in there. Let's just yeah, see why how it not? goes. Yeah, why not? You know, go for the gold. My fear in this case is that I sell my voice to something, and I don't, I'm not trying to say that ChatGPT will or won't do this, but somehow my voice is going to be like the voice of the killer robots, and it's just going to be my voice <laughs> to everyone. Um, yeah. Now, on the plus side, I we feel like we kind of are then, at that that point in history. Yeah, yeah, I feel like I could cut a deal with the killer robots. Like, put me in a hotel suite somewhere, and I'll be able to record do pickups for you. You know, you're not gonna you're gonna right. need you're gonna need me. You know, if you're gonna if you're going with that voice, right? So, um, well, you could you could trick the robots too. By well, eventually, like, I would have one chance to do like a resistance announcement, but I would live pretty high on the hog for many years before I found the right time to do that yeah, you know, yeah mainly yeah, yeah. right before my death i think i would i would just live in yeah. my hotel suite until then that's and the j- kind of just guy go I for it yeah yeah <laughs> you got it planned out you're good yeah you're good to go <laughs> so anyway i guess i'm available you know my number's a little lower than yours i guess <laughs> thank you for listening to the verity podcast for wednesday september 27th 2023 Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. To learn more about Verity, visit our website, verity.news. You can also download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. Verity.